0: So you can turn um, in your Bible to Micah chapter six. Micah chapter six. This is uh, this is an extremely important chapter. So when you think about God, um, if you're here and you say you're a Christian, or maybe you're not, maybe if you're not a Christian, what do you think about God when you think of him? There are two uh, wrong answers. Uh, but they're so, um, they're so tricky because they're both partially right um, that we can think of when we think about God. So there's two ditches. Ditch number one is when we think of God, we make him so personal and so present that we forget that he is God, you know, a little higher than we are, like a lot higher than we are, but we focus so much on the, the, the personal relationship that we forget that this is the God and Creator of the universe, and so without meaning to, we can sort of think of God as like this desperate, this desperate sap, this desperate lover who's pining away for us because we won't come to Him. Um, what's that Celine Dion song from Titanic? My heart will go on. You know, Jesus is just this guy mournfully crying because we won't come to Him. He's we so personal, we so personalize God that all the transcendence and otherness is is lost. So that's ditch number one. Ditch number two is we go the opposite way. And and we we so depersonalize God that all we talk about of God is he's just way up there. He's way holy, he's way powerful. And we don't focus very much at all on the fact that salvation is a relationship. It's personal. He personally rescues us. He personally cares about us. And so we end up presenting God as a really distant king. Like, the, have you ever gotten a piece of paper from the government or something? Like, the IRS sends you a letter, or the state sends you a letter, and it's very impersonal and bureaucratic, and you know, there's a signature at the bottom, and you don't know who the person is, and you don't really care. But they just represent some distant, faceless authority. Uh, that can be who we present God as, maybe without realizing it. Both of those ditches are wrongs. So they're the extreme, the extreme... there are two extremes on opposite ends. Our text in Micah chapter 6 teaches us this. So this is what I want us to get from the uh, the sermon. Is that uh, if we're not careful, we can read the Old Testament through that second lens where God is just the other faceless, very impersonal bureaucrat who's ready to issue us a ticket whenever we do wrong. And we're going to read Micah chapter 6, and there's a lot of condemnation. And you could think, when you read the prophets, you can get the idea of God as the faceless bureaucrat issuing citations, cold, emotionless. He's just like, Tyler, messed up today. Tyler, messed up again. And he just counts up the citations and gives you the stack at the end of the week, and you're just crushed. if we're not careful, that's the way we can read Micah. That's the way we can read the prophets. So as God confronts his people through Micah, especially today, uh, we're going to see his heart, his feelings, his attitude. And we see that G- God is not either of those two options. He's not in either ditch. He's not a desperate sap who listens to you know, Celine Dion's songs because he's so heartbroken that we haven't chosen him yet or that we're be- we're not being good kids. And he's also not not a cold judge who just issues tickets to sinners and just is trying to meet a quota. So the solution that I want us to see, so I guess I was wrong. This is what I want you to see. Um, When you leave today is to know, uh, to see that relationship with God is deep. It's personal. It's heartfelt on both sides, our side and his side. So today I want to focus on God's heart. You know, as it were. Um, I want us to see in, in Micah chapter 6 that God's love for his people, for you if you're a Christian, uh, is personal, specific, deep, and heartfelt. I want us to, to really see that. So I want us to leave here knowing how deeply God cares about us, even if we don't yet care about him, and that's what I want to talk about today. So we'll be in Micah, uh, Micah chapter six, and um, it helped, it'd be helpful if I could type. Um, Micah chapter six is very very fascinating because it is it's it's different people speaking. If you've read Song of Solomon and it has the 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 if the headings are good in Song of Solomon, you see the guy speaks, the woman speaks, the guy speaks, the woman speaks, the woman's. Attendants speak and other people speak and so it's like this it's like a play I speak he speaks you speak I speak and Micah 6 is like that where Micah speaks God speaks the people speak God speaks Micah speaks and so it's it's like a dialogue Uh, and if you read it you can see that but just to make it clear I'm doing stuff like this so in verses 1 through 2 we are going to see uh, Micah is going to try and get people's attention So they listen to what he has, uh, what he has to say. And it starts off where Micah is saying, okay, everyone listen up. Uh, God has something he wants to tell all of y'all. And he says, stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. That's God telling Micah to, to do this. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. So this is poetry. Being really dramatic. And so, so Mike is like talking to like the mountains and the, the earth, saying as though they could listen. Okay, all of y'all listen because I'm going to tell you something crazy that, that you'll never believe, that you'll never believe. What is it that he's going to tell them? Tell the mountains who know they were created by God in this poetic imagery. The mountains know they're created by God, they're not confused. Um, the hills know they're created by God, they're not confused. Um, so what's he going to tell them that's so that should just blow them away? He's going to tell them some crazy story that they wouldn't believe if they heard it, but they're about to hear it. This is the crazy story, starting in uh, starting in verse three. This is God speaking. My, so I'm going to read verses uh, three through five. This is God's complaint. My people, what have I done to you? Have I How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt, redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered? And then he talks about how he led them all the way to the Jordan River and got them across safely and into the promised land. I've done so much God says I've done so much and here's what I want us to see all of that's true but what's he say in verse 3 so this is what I want this is why I presented is God the uh, the, the two extremes of, of uh, God being the faceless bureaucrat who has no who's just cold and doesn't care or the desperate sap who all he does is listen to my heart will go on on you know, on repeat on Spotify all the time and cry in his room um, What does God say in verse three? What's the tone in verse three? My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. If you think about that, that's a very, very heartfelt question, heartfelt question. If God is only the distant bureaucrat who's cold, And issue citations and is like, uh, on 30 July 2023, Tyler did this citation. On 28 July 2023, he didn't do this another citation. If that's what God is, then God wouldn't speak like this. This is a God who cares, this is a God who's hurt not like a desperate sap celine dion isn't on the playlist but there are feelings there god reveals himself to us in this way so we get the depth of his concern so if you're sitting here and you say you're not a christian or maybe you are a christian this is the kind of love god has for you it's not cold it's not distant it's not well guess you made a bad decision we'll see how that turns out this is a personal sort of hurt my people what have I done to you how have I burdened you see if God is just a king if you sin then all you're doing is breaking a rule but if God has given you his heart if God has loved you if God has given himself for you which he has in Jesus if he sacrificed himself for you which he has In Jesus if he's revealed himself to you he's he's opened himself up told you all about not all about but enough about him and what he's doing and his plan to rescue you he's unburdened himself to you then when we sin we're not just breaking a rule we're stomping on his heart so god's revealing himself this way so we see that there is a personal connection here so god cares how we live god cares what we do god cares what we think verse three is really powerful because it shows us a god that's personal and a god who cares and more than that a god who can be as it were hurt And I wonder how much we really get that. When we think of relationship with God, do we think of God like that? Do we think of him like that? Or do we think of it as a citation? I'll say I'm sorry later. Does that work in a marriage? You might do it in your marriage. Does it work? No, it doesn't work because that's cheap. And we all know that. There's a reason why God is revealing himself this way. There's a reason why God compares a marriage to Christ in the church. Because it's a personal thing. So this is his accusation, verses 3 through 5. What have I done to you? Look at all I've done. I did all of this stuff for you. And what are you doing? All the stuff we've talked about earlier in the book. What's going on? And now the most awful thing happens in verses 6 and 7. Verses six and seven is one of two things. It's either Micah um, explaining what people people are saying in response to this, or it's Micah recording what the people actually are saying in response to this. So it's either Micah saying, sort of saying, the people are going to respond like this, or it actually is the people responding. I'll just say verses six and seven are the response of the the, the people when Micah tells them what God's message is God says what have I done to you the people respond in verses 6 and 7 and what do they say what do they say God uses the unfaithfulness equals adultery thing all throughout the scripture tons of times unfaithfulness equals adultery he compares it that way he talks in Ezekiel 16 he talks about how um, this is a long chapter and he alternates between the image of him as a father who rescues us from death and then he transitions over to him as the as the loving husband who's betrayed and in Ezekiel 16 when he gets to the second part he talks about how Israel was uh, a wife he cared for a wife he loved gave her everything did everything for her um, they gave her jewelry gave her gave her anything she could possibly loved her to the nth degree nth degree and He says, you just walked out on me and cheated with everyone you saw in this analogy. Why does God use, you are unfaithful to me, is like adultery? Why does he use that? Because he's trying to get us to understand this relationship. Adultery is more than just sexual. There's emotional, there's heart, there's a giving of yourself. So I want you to think, I want you to think, Um, say you have a spouse say your spouse has some secret lover and it's not just a sexual thing but your spouse goes and tells his lover all of his hopes his dreams his fears his secrets Uh, they have a deep emotional intimacy not just a sexual thing but an emotional intimacy and you discover this you discover the depths of the of the betrayal you know a sexual transgression can be explained away through some stupid means, but the, the, the emotional betrayal. He tells her all of his dreams and fears and hopes. He tells her all of his problems. That makes it even worse because now there's a sexual, there's a sexual betrayal and then there's a betrayal of the heart. A betrayal of the heart, that's a deeper kind of betrayal. And so pretend you confront your, pretend you confront your spouse if you found out about this. What would you do if he replied flippantly, offering to make it up by just buying you tons of gifts and responds in a superficial, cheap way? You know, there's no real sorrow. There's just, I'll shower money on you or I'll do these things you've wanted me to do and we'll just pretend everything's okay and okay, we're done now. You know, it's all fixed. What what if your spouse responded that way? What would you think? And so now read Micah chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 as the people respond to what God has just said. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? You know, okay, I can fix this. Tell me what I need to do. That's what the people are saying. Tell me what I need to do, and and I'll do it. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? I'll go grab the best I got. I'll bring him. We'll fix it. It's good. It's, It's fine. It's good. Everything will be great. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? So you have this picture of someone who's like, I, I, I can fix it. I'll, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll get this, I'll do that, I'll bring it, and it'll all be fine. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They're even offering there's there's like such a depth of, of desperation like a guy whose marriage he's like sees it coming apart because his wife's confronting him and he just he's like I'll do anything I'll do anything and, you know he makes all sorts of stupid promises um I love you and so the same sort of thing is happening here even to the point where they're so the people are so twisted up and so messed up in the head that they in desperation they they They, like, offer to sacrifice their children to God to show how serious they are about how sad they are, which is so stupid and wrong and twisted. So if you picture your spouse responding flippantly, okay, I'll do this, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and you can tell it's it's not real. There is no sorrow. There's just, I don't want... uh, uh, I don't want this marriage to end, and I'm sorry, and you know it's all fake. That's what the people in Micah verses uh, chapter 6, verses seven, 6 and 7, that's how they respond to God, that exact same way. How much will it cost to fix this? How can we fix this? I'll take you out to dinner three times a week. I'll be home at this time every day. I'll do it. There. We good now? And if that was the response, you'd be like, no, we're not good. That's not the point. But I'm home every day at this time. That's not the point either. All this external action, it's not real. And we all get that in these relationships on this level, but when it comes to God, we can sometimes conveniently forget that and make it a transaction because that's what happens in verses 6 and 7. And now in verse 8, Micah replies as though he's responding to them with one of the most famous verses in the Bible. He tells them, basically, you you basically want to know how much it's going to cost to fix this. It's not about the cost. It's not about you getting home on time. It's not about um, you deleting her from your uh, Instagram and from your phone. It's about your heart. Your heart is twisted and wrong. So verse 8, Micah says, no, 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 you're missing everything. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your 10,000 rivers of oil. I don't want you to talk about how you're going to come right home every night. I don't want to hear you talk about how you're going to delete all your social media from your phone. I don't want to hear any of that garbage. We can talk about that later, but first, first, what about Your heart. What about real sorrow? What about behavioral change driven from the heart? He has shown you, O mortal, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require? What is the good? What does it mean to be a believer? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what you would say to your spouse. I don't want your money. I don't want your gifts. I don't want all these bribes. I want you that's how this will be fixed i want you i want your heart i want your loyalty i want your love for me to drive how you think about me and how you treat me i want a relationship i don't want this external band-aid and what does it mean What, what what does it mean to to love god act justly love mercy walk humbly To act justly means to do, to live, and to act, do things in the right and just way. Do the right thing according to God's standard. And that's a big category, but we'll just have to leave it there. He's counting on you to to know his word. Uh, Act justly. And he's specifically thinking about the brotherly love relationships with other people in the community. Because that's what's all messed up from Micah chapter 2. Act justly. Love mercy means to be compassionate, tender-hearted, soft-hearted. Do you have a soft heart for especially people in the household of faith who are in trouble? Do you have a soft heart for people outside the family of faith so you can show them Christ's love? Or are you a cynical, hard-hearted person? Has anyone seen the Clint Eastwood movie, Gran Torino, where he says, Get off my lawn! Is that you? Are you a get-off-my-lawn kind of Christian? That's the opposite of soft-hearted. Do we have soft hearts, especially toward other people? That's what, he, that's, that's what he's getting at. The first two are about us as a people here in this world. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, which really means basically to, to walk to, to live in a way so that you're ready to serve God. Do you live ready to serve God? Or is that just a catch? Is that just a bumper sticker? That's what he's asking. That's what he's saying. That's what it means to, to love God. It's not about believing all the stuff in the bullet points. It's not about external things. It's about love for God that drives this stuff. That's what it means to be a believer. That's what God requires. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, and none of those things can happen unless you actually love him because he first loved us. None of it can happen unless that happens. And so in verse 9, in verse 9, he talks about verse 9 to the end of the chapter. He just gives this vision of complete destruction. Because of what you've done, all of these things are happening. And he says, shall I, in verse 11, shall I quit someone with dishonest scales, with bags of false weights? There's no brotherly love. You, your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars. Their tongues speak deceitfully. This is a society that's supposed to love one another and wait for the Messiah. Instead, they're destroying themselves, and they're not a light for anything but Satan. And so God says, well, we're going to punish this. And that's what the rest of the chapter is. It's a vision of temporary exile. So there's two, there's two. God uses a lot of analogies to get across different different so we know what the relationship's like. He talks about himself as a as a as a spouse. And so here in a spousal analogy, this would be time apart. He reveals himself as a parent, as heavenly father, so we can get across the idea that he cares, that he knows what's best for us. that He's going to discipline us like dads do. And and, and all of these things, all of these analogies of, I'm your husband and you're the cheating spouse. I'm your heavenly father and you're uh, the, the child who needs to listen. I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep who's wandering away. It's all getting across this idea to drill into our heads, like with a two by four, that we need him. He's the father we never had. Maybe you don't have, maybe your father wasn't the kindest father on earth. Maybe you didn't, maybe you had the best father. Maybe your father wasn't the kind of father that you wish you had. God is the best father. That's that's what it's trying to get across. Maybe your spouse isn't the best spouse. Maybe your spouse isn't a good spouse. Maybe you've been divorced because of you or your spouse and mistakes one or both of you have made and there's hurt and there's pain, God is the best spouse. All of these angles are trying to get across relationship, 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 the best relationship. So this is what I want us to think about when we go back to verse um, uh, 3. Now, What have I done to you? What have I done to you? Tell me what I did to deserve you treating me like this. When we've been really hurt by someone, the pain often leads us to want to, you know, in an earlier age, you like rip people's photographs up, right? If you've been really hurt nowadays, no one prints any photographs. So there aren't many to rip up, but you know, you'll go on your phone and you'll delete photographs maybe, or maybe you do have photographs and you'll rip them up or you'll throw them away. Or there's so much pain that when you see it, you're reminded and you're like, I need to get rid of it and uh, cut the person out of my life. Right? Um, unfollow them if you're younger and you like social media or get rid of their picture whatever uh, remove them from your life because the sight of them gives you pain dredges up memories memories you don't want you don't like keeps the pain away Um, and that that's us in God with him is this all this analogies of you have betrayed me Um, that's us in God we betrayed him We've heard him. We've cheated on him in the worst, most intimate way possible. You should read Ezekiel sixteen if you haven't read it. There's an the analogy of the the father who raises who raises the girl and she and she doesn't care, and then transitions over to the husband who cares for the woman who breaks his heart. Why do you think God reveals Himself that way? But uh, what I want us to see is that have we considered that when we might want to delete people's pictures or rip up people's pictures and we might be able to do it if someone's hurt us but god can't get rid of our picture have you thought about that god can't get rid of the picture it's not that he can't it's that he's he doesn't want to get rid of our picture he doesn't want to take our picture down or cut us out or delete us from facebook or google Photos. Um, even though we're always there reminding him of our betrayal, because either we don't care about him, we don't love him, or we say we do, but we're falling really short lately. Whatever the case is, he always sees how we do wrong. And instead of cutting us out, God doesn't want to put our picture away. God doesn't want to unfollow us and unfriend us. He wants to keep us right there, right before his face, so when we turn on our phone, there's the screen, and there we are. And he's always reminded every time he reaches for the phone, he wants to do that because he's chosen instead to pursue us and to win us back. And that's why, if you haven't read Hosea 1-3, through you should read it so you can see this beautiful parable of God and what he thinks about us. And if you've never read Hosea 1-3... through Hosea, poor guy, Uh, people wonder whether this really happened or whether it's just an elaborate part of the book. Um, Hosea is a guy, and God tells him, I want you to marry this woman of ill repute, Um, scandalous woman. I want you to marry her and then have children. And so Hosea marries her and has children. And then she leaves him. She cheats on him and goes away. And then God says, now I want you to know, I want you to go after her and not kidnap her. I want you to go after her and I want you to win her heart back and convince her to come back home and to leave all that behind. And of course, it's supposed to be painful because anyone would say, forget her. Look what she's done to me. The pain. And God's point is to say, yes, that is what you all do to me every day. And I still Sent Jesus to go and rescue you. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. With this analogy, God says, I'll betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Just as Hosea is told, You need to go and you need to win her back. I don't care what she's done to you. You need to go and win her back. Make her your wife and wipe the slate clean. God says, that is what I'm going to do with you, even though you have cheated on me and still cheat on me and betray me. Hosea 3, 1 through 2. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again after she's shacked up with who knows how many guys since she left you go show your love to your wife again though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress love her as the Lord loves the Israelites though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes pagan food for the gods so to speak and that all of these analogies are meant to get across that's how much God cares that's how much God loves and that's how much we hurt him as it were when we don't care and are unfaithful and that's something that's worth uh, that's worth thinking about I'll close with um, very familiar passage of Scripture Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 to 27 having seen I read Ezekiel Ezekiel 16 is the classic passage about the the adultery metaphor Jeremiah has some stuff, too. Jeremiah 3 is also there. Uh, But there's a reason why Paul does the same thing here. He's not making stuff up. He's picking up analogies under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and he's applying them to our lives. So this is what he says, and I want you to read this. Don't worry about husbands and wives. I just want to focus on Christ as the analogy to get across how husbands and wives should treat each other. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just as a husband loves his wife, Christ loved the church. So we are the bride, so to speak, right? The believing community is the bride of Jesus. This marriage metaphor is still here from Ezekiel and from the Old Testament. Here it is. Loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just as Hosea sacrificed his, the pain and the hurt to go and win his wife back, so the son comes and sacrifices his life to give himself up for the believing community. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. This is not saying husbands make their wives holy. It's usually the other way, the other way around. But what it's saying, using this analogy of Christ gave himself for the community to make to to cleanse his people, to purify us, to renovate us. And so all the way by the end of the story, we're fixed. You're fixed. I'm fixed. We're fixed. We've been cleansed by washing with water through the word. The Holy Spirit has washed us through the message of the gospel over and over and over throughout our life. And like a spin cycle that keeps going and going, it'll end one day when we're finally clean and the stains are finally gone to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So it's the same analogy of God loves us so much that he gave himself for us to rescue us and cleanse us. And it's that when when Paul reaches for, how can I express the love that God has in a way that, that we can understand it as people? marriage. Just as husband and wife, mutual love, mutual submission, mutual giving of one another for the other's sake, for the other's uh, dreams and better hopes, and, and, and for the sake of the couple, um, God has given himself for his community. That's the love parallel he wants to see because this love is personal. It's real, it's deep, it's intimate, and that's the love God has when we break his law and don't care. That's the love God has when we respond flippantly to the word, when we see ourselves when we read the scripture and instead of thinking about doing something, we just don't care. That's the, the hurt that God has, as it were, because it's a real love, not a guy issuing a ticket. So how, will, how are we responding to Christ? How are you responding to Christ. Do you have a real relationship with Christ, or is it more some bullet points you believe? Is it a real relationship, or is God to you? To you, if, if Jesus to you is the guy issuing tickets, and there's no love, there's no relationship, there's no connection, it's open to question whether you even know Jesus in the, in, in the believing sort of way do you see now how why god reveals himself as father because he wants to get across the closeness of relationship do you see why jesus said he's not ashamed to call believers his brothers and sisters in hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 because there's a relationship there sibling shepherd um, um, spouse heavenly father all of these are trying to you know put a fence around to say Love, 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 love. And whatever, you know, whatever metaphor needs to get this across, God will use all of them so we can get love. Love for God. God gave himself for us. And so real relationship means that we we give ourselves back to him. Not first by works and not first by, not first by words and not first by deeds, but first by love, which produces words and deeds for him just as surely as a tree will produce fruit after its kind. So in marriage, we give ourselves, we're supposed to tell one another everything, and we're emotionally intimate in marriage. That's why it's a metaphor for the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. That's why human marriage at its best is meant to be an echo of our marriage to Christ. Or are we in bed, so to speak, with someone else while saying that God is our spouse. You can do a lot with these metaphors when you start applying them to to life in our relationship with God. So when we think of Micah chapter six, and we see what God says, and we see where he says, what have I done to you? We should think about our lives. We should think about our relationship with God and ask whether it's actually deep and meaningful. And then if we say yes, and we really mean it, we should think, of what God feels, as it were, when we don't care or when we take him for granted. And how we would feel if our spouse did that to us, that's how God feels in this analogy when we do that to him. Be sure that Jesus has your heart because he gave his for you, as it says on the screen. And he's inviting you, he's inviting you to accept his gift through the gospel. And if we do, it's a relationship. It's not a transaction. And we ought to live that way. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, please work on our hearts. Help us to love you. Help us to uh, want to be better children for you. Convict us by the Holy Spirit as as the shoe fits and as your will directs. And help us to be better and more obedient children for you. Help us to have a spirit of love that produces fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and mm-hmm.